0: We apologize for the poor quality of the following recording of a sermon by the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Although we have digitally restored this to improve clarity, the quality is not as good as we would like. We do apologize for this, but nevertheless, hope that this sermon will be a great encouragement and a blessing to you. I should like to call your attention this morning to verses 25 and 26 in the 73rd Psalm. Psalm 73. Verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here in these words the psalmist takes yet a further step in the process of his recovery from the spiritual sickness and illness from which he had been suffering. We followed him as he goes from step to step and stage to stage. It tells us that he was in a position in which his feet were almost gone, his steps had well nigh slipped. He was on the verge of Falling in a most terrible manner and of uttering things about God and his goodness and his love which no man should ever utter. But he had been saved from it. He'd been arrested. He'd been held. And looking back over it all, and he found that it was God who had held him. He didn't realize that at the time. He thought it was just this question that he couldn't offend the generation of God's people. However, that held him, but still he wasn't happy. And he didn't begin to understand the position until he went into the sanctuary of God. And it was there. He was given to see clearly the truth about that problem which had been perplexing him. Why is it that the ungodly seem so often to be having a good and a remarkable time in this world, whereas God's people... Seems seemed so frequently to be suffering and having difficulties and trials. There he saw it all. God revealed it to him. He saw the truth about the ungodly. He saw the truth about God. He saw the truth about himself. And then, of course, having experienced all that, he looks at himself, and he condemns himself. He repents in sackcloth and ashes. There's nothing too strong, For him to say, against himself, he sums it up in this word, I was as a beast of folly, so stupid, so ignorant. He just, thus I say, honestly faces himself at his worst, and admits there's nothing to be said for him. He would have banished himself if he had the power, out of the sight of God. But thank God he didn't have that power, no man has that power. And he went on to make the marvelous discovery that in spite of all that had been true of him, nevertheless, he is continually in the presence of God. God hasn't left him. God had never left him. That is the humbling thing in a way that even when we wander from him, God is still in a sense holding our right hand. He allows us to go so far, but never further. He pulled him back. He held him. And he restored him. It was God who was working the whole time. Took him into the house of God to have this understanding. And there revealed everything to him. And so, thus understanding his past and his experience, he looks to the future. And as we saw last time, he can face it now with real confidence. He says, Thou hast heard me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel. And afterward, receive me to glory. He's convinced that a God who's done all this for him is a God who can never let him go, and he never will let him go. God who has begun the good work will complete it and perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So he has arrived at this wonderful position in which he sees clearly God's dealings with him and God's purposes with respect to him. And having seen all that, He now comes to this next step, this further statement. And this, beyond any question, is the final position, the topmost level of all. Having seen all that he has seen, uh, there is only one thing left. It's quite inevitable, and here it is. There is nothing left in view of all this but just to give himself to worship and adoration of God. And that is what he does in these two verses. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, and may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and my portion forever. Now, I say that this is the next inevitable step. And I'm very concerned about that point, and I want to emphasize it. Has there been anything more interesting as we followed this man in his spiritual pilgrimage than to notice the connection between every step and every stage? And I'm suggesting that here we have what we may well describe as the norm of the Christian life, the normal spiritual experience. We've been indicating it as we've gone along. If we stop at any one of these positions, there's something wrong with us, in a spiritual sense. To realize the truth at any one of these points inevitably leads to the next. And it's always a step higher, a step upwards. From that first beginning, well, from the presence of sinking and going lower and lower, he hold himself and a foot him. From that very moment, this man Began to go up from step to step and from round to round. And in each case he did it quite inevitably. Because if you understand any one of these situations it must lead you on to the next. (laughs) And so, I say that this man having realized all these things about God and God's gracious dealings with him. And the marvelous doctrine of grace in its various manifestations. He just almost involuntarily and quite inevitably found himself worshipping God and adoring before him at his wonderful throne. Now, this, I say, is the end of the process and it is the uttermost, topmost level at which we can ever arrive. Indeed, I do not hesitate to say that in these two verses we have the goal of salvation. This is what it's all about, what it's all for. And this man had arrived at it. May I say something here in parenthesis? One often finds a tendency amongst Christian people to depreciate the Old Testament it isn't that they don't believe in it as the word of God, they do, of course. But there is a tendency for them to contrast themselves with the saints of the Old Testament. Its dispensationism run riot and run mad. These uh, sharp divisions which are not at all justified by the scriptures themselves. And the tendency for people to say is, of course, we are in Christ. We've received the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament saints didn't know all this. And they were, they were therefore on a very inferior level. We tend to contrast ourselves with them uh, to our advantage and to our favor. Well, if there's anybody who's tended to think like that, I've just one simple question to put to you. And it's this. Can you honestly use the language that this man uses in these two verses? Have you arrived at a knowledge of God and an experience of God such as this man had? Can you say quite honestly, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. How prejudiced we are. How ready to fight our ideas unto the scripture. My friends, these Old Testament saints were children of God exactly as you and I are. Are there not times, indeed, if you read these Psalms quite honestly, when you feel rather ashamed of yourself, and rather begin to wonder whether they haven't gone further than you've ever done? They were children of God, even as we are. Let us be careful, then. I say, lest we press dispensational truth too far, and make distinctions which end by being thoroughly unscriptural. This man is able to speak like this about his relationship to God. I do not hesitate to aware that the whole business of the New Testament gospel and its salvation is simply to bring us to this. (laughs) This is the test of Christian profession. This is the whole purpose of the incarnation and the entire work of our blessed Lord and Savior. It is to enable us to speak like this to use this Old Testament language. And therefore I would ask again my question. Can we speak like this? Is this our experience? Do we know God as this man knew him? Whatever else we may have, whatever else we may be able to say, I say we must never be satisfied until we can come to this. This is the goal, this is the objective. And to be satisfied at any point or any stage, however good, short of this, is in a sense to deny the Gospel itself. The great grand end and object of the whole Gospel is to bring us, as I'm going to show you, to this particular position. The psalmist and a rhyme there. Let me say it again. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart fail, But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's he mean? What is he saying? Well, it seems to me that we can look at this magnificent, mighty, glorious statement in two main ways, or if you like, from 2 standpoints. I am quite sure that the first thing in his mind was a negative. He was making a negative statement. He means this, that he has found as the result of his experience that there is nobody else anywhere who can help him. If you like, there is no other saviour anywhere else. He's asking a kind of rhetorical question. Who is there who can help me anywhere, in heaven or on earth, but me? There's nobody else. When I'm in trouble, he says, and when things have gone wrong, and when I'm really at the end of the teller, and I don't know what to do nor where to turn, I found, says this man, that there's nobody apart from me. When he needs comfort and solace and strength and assurance and something to hold on to. He has found that there is nothing anywhere. There is no one apart from God. Now, I think this negative is, is important for us. It's important for us all. Indeed, I thank God for the negative. I find it very comforting. For I imagine that what Chris man is saying can be put in this form whatever his imperfections and whatever his fear, he at all was able to say this, that when he was away from God and disobeying God and more or less turning his back upon God, he couldn't find satisfaction. There was an emptiness about it all. It couldn't satisfy him, it couldn't please him, it couldn't help him, it couldn't strengthen him. This man had found, in his experience, that when he was wrong with God, he was wrong everywhere. At any rate he could say this, that if he wasn't able to make very positive statements about God, he could say there was nothing in anybody or anything else. Now that's a very comforting thought. Are we able to say the negative, my friends? If we are frightened of the positive test, how do we stand up to this negative test? Can you say quite truthfully that you've seen through everything else in this life and in this world? Have you yet come to see that everything that the world offers is a broken system? Have you really been enabled yet to see through the world and its way and all its supposed glory? Have you come to the point at which you can say, well, I know this much at any rate, that there's nothing else that can satisfy I've tried them. I've experimented with them. I've played with them. And I've come to this conclusion that apart from God, chaos is come again. Now, I think this is a very important experience, a very vital one. Any man who's ever been a backslider knows exactly what I'm saying. And it's one of the things that proves what I was saying last week and the week before about the backslider. The backslider is a man who, because of his relationship to God, can never really enjoy anything else. He tries them, but he's miserable while he does. He knows it's wrong. He seems it. And this man... Is making that negative statement. Now this therefore is something by which we must always test ourselves. And it is in its remarkable way, and in its own way, a very striking statement on one's Christian faith and belief. That is often, I say, the first state that suddenly you find that everything else has become different. Old things have passed away. Old things have become new. They don't seem to possess the charm and the value that they once seemed to have. And you're just conscious that when you're not in the right relationship to God, that the very foundation seems to have gone. Search where you will. Travel to the ends of the earth. Try and find satisfaction. anywhere else heaven or earth. Without God, there is none. That's the first element in the statement. But obviously we don't stop there. We can't leave it at that. The statement is also a very positive one. And let me emphasize this. Let me try to subdivide with this man's positive assertion here. Positively he's saying, I think, in the first place, that he now desires God himself. Not what God gives or what God does. Now, that's a very important statement for this reason. The whole essence of this man's problem, in a sense, had been just this. That he had been putting what God gives in the place of God himself. That was his problem about the ungodly. They're having a good time. Why am I not having a good time? Why am I being plagued all the day long? Why is it that I seem to have washed my hands and purified my heart in vain? Now, what was his trouble? Well, his trouble was, you see, that he was more interested in the things that God gives to us than in God himself. And because he didn't seem to be having the things he wanted, he began to doubt God's love. But now he's got over it all, he's healthy again, and he's now got to the place in which he can say quite honestly. He desires now God himself. And not what God gives, nor what God does. I want to put this very strongly. The ultimate test of the Christian is that he desires God even more than he desires forgiveness. We all desire forgiveness. And it's right to desire forgiveness. Yes, but that's a very low state of Christian experience. The uttermost of Christian experience is when a man says, yes, beyond forgiveness, what I desire is God, God himself. We often desire power, don't we? Ability, various gifts. It's right, in a sense, to desire them. But if we ever put those things before God again, we're showing we're very poor Christians. The Christian desires the giver and not the gift. We desire blessings of various types. We pray to God for them. And often in doing so we are insulting God because in a sense we are virtually telling him I'm not really interested in you except of the fact that you are the one who can give me this blessing. We want the blessings and we go and ask for the blessings and we never stop to enjoy the blessed person himself. This man had been through all that. But now he's come to see that the greatest of all blessing is just to know God and to be in the presence of God. Well, the Bible is full of this. Take that 42nd Psalm, which we read at the beginning. There it is again in those first two verses. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? It fell absolutely perfect. The man, you is crying out for this direct knowledge of God, this immediate experience of God. His soul panteth, he's thirsting for this, the living God. Not God as an idea, not God as a source and a fount of blessing, but the living person himself. Do we know this, my friends? Do we hunger for Him and thirst for Him? Are our souls panting after Him? This is a very profound matter. And the terrible thing is that it's possible to go through life of us praying day by day and praying often perhaps by day and yet, yet never realizing that the supreme thing is to come face to face with God, to worship Him in the spirit, a spiritual worship where you know that you're having traffic and doing business and having dealings directly with the living God. Have we known His presence? Is He real to us? Yea, let me put it on a lower level. Are we longing for that? Are we seeking that? Are we lacking satisfaction until we have that? Is that the greatest desire of our hearts this morning and our highest ambition beyond all other blessings and all experiences just and well that we are there before him and with him and enjoying. That was what the psalmist desired in the 42nd Psalm that is what this psalmist of ours in the 73rd Psalm was actually enjoying and of course Paul says exactly the same thing he puts it in his own language we, got, we had it there in that 10th verse of the third chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. If you ask me, says Paul, what my desire is, my greatest desire it's this, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His Son. You notice His supreme ambition? Oh, let me not be misunderstood as I say it, His supreme ambition is not even to be a great soul-winner. It was an ambition of his and a right one, and should be. It wasn't to be a great preacher. It wasn't to do this and to have power and to be used. No, beyond it all, including it all, that I might know him. Because, as the apostle reminds us, you see, if you put the other things first, You may find yourself in a sense as a preacher becoming even a castaway. But when you put at the center this blessed knowledge, all it had a vision of the living Christ, the risen Lord, and yet you see what he hungers for and longs for and pants after is this further, deeper, more intimate knowledge of him. Personal knowledge. A personal revelation of the living Lord in a spiritual sense. It's everywhere. You see, there's nothing higher than this. Look at the aged John, writing his farewell letter to the Christians, And this is what he tells them in the first chapter of his first epistle. He says, my great desire is that your joy may be fulfilled. How is that joy to be fulfilled? Well, it's this, he says, that uh, you may have fellowship with us that you may share with us as partners the blessed experience that we've got and what is that? Well, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. They have fellowship. It doesn't mean that you're just engaged in God's work. It means that, of course, but that's the lowest level. The highest level is really to know God Himself. This is life eternal. That they might know the the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. And indeed we have the authority of our Lord himself not only in the verse i just quoted, but in that other statement of his when the men came to him and asked, which is the first and the greatest? May I ask another question? And I think it is these simple questions that really tell us the whole truth about ourselves. What are you looking for in heaven? Or oh, let me ask a question that perhaps should come before that. Do you ever look forward to being in hidden? That's not being morbid. I like the way in which Matthew Henry once put it. We are never told in the scriptures that we should look forward to death, but we are told very frequently in the scriptures that we should look forward to hidden. The man who looks forward to it simply wanting to get out of this world because of his problems and his troubles. That's not Christian at all. That's pagan. But the Christian has the positive. And that's what I asked. Do we look forward to being in heaven? Yes, and in addition, what do we look forward to when we get to heaven? What is it that we are desiring? Is it the rest of heaven? Is it the deliverance from trials and troubles and tribulations? Is it the peace of heaven? Is it the joy of heaven? All those things are to be found there, thank God. But you know, that's not the thing to look forward to in heaven. It's this, it's still the same thing. It is the vision of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek. The vision split. The summon bonum. Standing in the very presence of God to gaze and gaze on him. do we long for that, my friend? Is that heaven to us? Is that the thing we see above everything else, everything to covet and to long for? Well, the Apostle Paul again puts it in his own language, and this is the more Christian form of it: What is to die when well, it is to be wed with Christ? There's no need to add anything to that. And that is why I believe we are told so little about, in a detailed sense, about the life in heaven and in glory. People often ask that question. Why aren't we told more about it, yes sir? Well, I think there are two answers to that question. The first is this that to our sinful stroke at any description which we might have, we would misunderstand. It's so glorious that our language is inadequate and imperfect. We can't describe it. But I think there's a second reason. is the one I'm referring to now, and it's even more important. It is an ideal curiosity that desires to know more. I'll tell you what heaven is to be with Christ. And if that doesn't satisfy you, well, then you don't know Christ, that's all. What is heaven to me? Whom have I in heaven? Not thee, says this man men. I don't want anything else. Whatever thou art that is heaven, just to look at thee. But bewareful. It. It's all. It's everything. It's enough. It's more than enough. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Oh, my friend. How much do we know of this experience? We are not modernists. We are not liberals. We are better than these other people. I know, but what a poor standard. There are certain things we don't do. We've certain experiences. We've enjoyed certain blessings. All right. But this is the test. Do you know him? Do you long for him? Just to be with him? To be conversing with him? Do you pant after him? Are you thirsting after the living God and for this intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ? That's Christian experience. How much time do we take to spend with him and to think about him and to speak to him, to pray to him? Whom am I in heaven but thee? And in the same way he goes on to say, And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Again, let us notice that the psalmist says this, of course, because that was, uh, as I've already indicated, the very essence of his previous trouble. It was because he was desiring certain other things on earth, he'd very nearly gone. He's ungodly. Look at them. No bangs in their death. Their eyes stand out with fatness. Their business flourishes. Their children are not ill. There are no bangs in their death. Look what they're having on earth and in this world. And he wanted those things. But he no longer wants them. He's seen through all that, not now. There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. God alone in heaven, God alone on earth. The scripture again is full of this. Listen to the Lord Jesus Christ putting this in his way. I'm going to read to you Luke 14:26. If any men come to me, And hate not his father, and his mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. Don't worry about that word hate. It's simply a strong word which is meant to say this. That any man who puts anybody or anything in his life before Christ is not a true disciple of him. To be a true disciple of Christ means that he comes first on earth, before everybody, before everything. Christ at the center, Christ the Lord of my life, Christ on the throne of my being, that I love him first before everyone and everything. None on earth that I desire beside thee, Does he come, I wonder, first in our lives? Even before our loved ones and nearest and dearest? Even before my work, before my success, before my busyness, before anything else? Even while we are here in this world and on earth, he should be our supreme desire. To we a land with what is Christ? Christ himself. To be walking through this world with him, to be having fellowship with him in the light. That's the test. And you see, it was because he had come to that that the Apostle Paul is able to say the remarkable and amazing things that he says in the fourth chapter of the epistle to the to the Philippians. He tells us there that he has learned in whatsoever state he is there, with therein to be content. I know, he says, both how to be abased and how to abandon. Why? Well, things no longer captivate, things no longer control. It's Christ. It's Christ I want. If I have Christ, I have all. If I've got nothing to eat, I have Christ. If I've only amount to eat, I still have Christ. It's Christ I'm living on. I can do all things through Christ which, thanks note me, we are made independent of circumstances and surroundings, of accident and chance, living on him and by him and for him. Other things pale into insignificance. Do we desire him above everything as we are going through this earthly pilgrimage? The psalmist had come to that. Let me go on to the next thing, which is this. He tells us that he finds complete satisfaction in him The whole statement means that, doesn't it? But he puts it in particular. Whom are I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. That's it, my portion forever. This portion, this supply, this satisfaction, this everything. There is nothing that he can desire but that God gives it him. What is God? Well, he's a son and a king. He gives voice and love. There's no end to it. I mustn't keep you. He finds that God satisfies him completely. His mind, his heart, his whole man. Do you find complete intellectual satisfaction in God and in his holy word? Do you feel that you've got all philosophy here and that you need nothing beyond it? It is here. God satisfies the mind completely to overflow and the heart. The affections he fills everything. Ransom, heal, restore, forgive, who, like ye, his prey should save. That's it. God is all and in all. He's everything. My portion, my complete satisfaction. I desire nothing else. I want nothing in addition. Or oh, read the Psalms, and you'll find they're overflowing with it. Read the 103rd Psalm. That's exactly what the men's saying there. Julius, thy diseases and thy sicknesses, cast his sins behind him gives you strength and power, everything. There is nothing you can ever need or desire within or without, but that God will give it. He's fully satisfied by this blessed, glorious God. And then that brings him to the last. He rests confidently in God. He desires God for himself and for his own sake rather than what he gives. He desires nothing but God. He finds complete satisfaction in God. And he rests and reposes confidently in God. Listen to this. My flesh and my heart faileth. There are those who say that he was describing an experience at the time as well as in the future, and probably they may be right. Because, you know, you can't pass through a spiritual experience such as this man passed through without your physical body suffering. I believe this man's nerves were in a bad state. His very body was suffering. He may have had digestive troubles. He may have had other troubles. His even physical heart may have been misbehaving in a sense. My flesh and my heart falleth. He was in a bad state physical. And in any case, looking to the future, he knows that a day is bound to come when his flesh and his heart will fail. He'll become an old man. His faculties will fail him. His strength will falter. He'll become feeble. He won't be able to feed himself. Perhaps he'll be lying helpless in a bed. Everything seems to be going and slipping away. It's all right, says this man. Even when that happened, God, the same God still, is the strength of my heart. Now, it's generally agreed that the word that was used, which is translated here as strength, is the word rock. But God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. I rather like that because, you see, it conjures up an image in our minds and the image is this. Oh, yes, as this man, I know him now in such a way that I can rest quietly and confidently in him. I know I can even say this, he says. Though a day may come when I shall feel the very foundations of life pressing and stretching beneath me, God will be the rock that will hold me. She cannot be moved. He cannot be shifted. He's the rock of the ages and wherever I am and whatever is happening, and when my physical frame is dissolving, and when heaven and earth are passing away, God will still sustain me and I shall never be moved. Ugh. is the rock the strength of my heart forever. Oh, the Bible is never tired of saying it. Listen to another saying. Visualizing terrible conditions which may come to pass, this is the comfort and the consolation that is given. Underneath! Yes, you're dropping in space. Your foundations of life are gone. Everything you've built on is crashing. You don't know where you are, what's going to happen, and you're going down into an abyss. No, no. And Underneath! And they're always there. Underneath are the everlasting up. They'll always hold you. You'll never finally collapse. You'll be held when everything is gone. Gone. Is to wrong. Or listen to Isaiah putting it. It's the same thing. He talks about that foundation stone, that sure, tried, tested foundation stone that has been set. And what he says is this. He that believeth shall never make haste. A better translation is this, as you get it in the New Testament. He that believeth shall never be confounded. He that believeth shall never be put to shame. Why? He's on the rock. He's got this stability. He's got this foundation. And it cannot move Nothing can move it. It's God himself. And on this rock, though my flesh and my heart may fail, I shall never be moved. I shall never be taken by surprise. I shall never be put to shame. God will see me right through. Very well, let me try and sum it up in a hymn which, alas, is not in our hymn book, but let me read it to you. This is the final confession of the Christian. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness I dare not trust my sweetest friend But wholly lean on Jesus' name On Christ the solid rock I stand <laughs> All other ground is sinking sand When darkness seems to veil his face I rest on his unchanging grace In every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant and blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soldiers' way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's it, my friend. Do we know it? Are we on the rock? Do we know him? Don't live on your work. Don't live on your own business, on your own activity. Don't live on your experiences. Live on nothing. They'll all go. You have the devil suggesting to them that they can be explained psychologically. You become old and tired. The greatest tragedy I think I've ever known in this world was to see a man who had been engaged throughout a long, busy, active life in Christian work, time for months and apparently having nothing to fall back upon, he had without knowing it, but he'd been living on his own activity, a terrible state to be in. Let's live on nothing, let's trust to nothing, but to him, who is the rock of age, the everlasting, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand, all other the ground, is sinking sound? Oh, man.